Chapter One of the Courage of Marge O'Doon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Paula. The Courage of Marge O'Doon by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter One. If you had stood there in the edge of the bleak spruce forest, with the wind moaning dismally through the twisting trees, midnight of deep December, the transcontinental would have looked like a thing of fire, dull fire, glowing with the smouldering warmth, but of strange ghostliness and out of place. It was a weird shadow, helpless and without motion, and black as the half-arctic night, save for a band of illumination that cut in twain from the first coach to the last with a space like an inky hyphen where the baggage car lay. Out of the north came armies of snow-laden clouds that scudded just above the earth, and with these clouds came now and then shrieking mockery of wind to taunt the stricken creation of man and the creatures it sheltered, men and women who had begun to shiver, and whose tense white faces stared with increasing anxiety into the mysterious darkness of the night that hung like a sable curtain ten feet from the car windows. For three hours those faces had peered out into the night. Many of the prisoners in the snow-bound coaches had enjoyed the experience somewhat at first. There is pleasing and indefinable thrill to unexpected adventure, and this, for a brief spell, had been adventure de luxe. There had been warmth and light, men's laughter, women's voices, and children's play, but the loudest gesture among the men was now silent, huddled deep in his great coat and the young women who had clapped their hands in silly ecstasy when it was announced that the train was snowbound was weeping and shivering by turns it was cold so cold that the snow which came sweeping and swirling with the wind was like granite dust it click click clicked against the glass a bombardment of untold billions of infestimal projectiles fighting to break in in the edge of the forest it was probably forty degrees below zero within the coaches there still remained some little warmth the burning lamps radiated it and the presence of many people added to it but it was cold and growing colder a grey coating of congealed breath covered the car windows a few men had given their outer coats to women and children these men looked most frequently at their watches the adventure de luxe was becoming serious for the twentieth time a passing train man was asked the same question the good lord only knows he growled down into the face of the young woman whose prettiness would have enticed the most chivalrous attention from him earlier in the evening engine and tender had been gone three hours and the divisional point only twenty miles up the line should have been back with help long ago hell ain't it the young woman did not reply but her round mouth formed a quick and silent approbation of his final remark three hours the train man continued in his growling as he went on with his lantern that's the hello railroading it along the edge of the arctic when you get snowed in you're snowed in there ain't no two ways about it he paused at the smoking compartment thrust in his head for a moment passed on and slammed the door of the car after him as they went into the next coach in that smoking compartment there were two men facing each other across a narrow space between the two seats they had not looked up when the train man thrust in his head they seemed as one leaned over towards the other wholly oblivious of the storm it was the older man who bent forward he was about fifty the hand that rested for a moment on david rain's knee was red and knotted it was the hand of a man who had lived his life in struggling with the wilderness and the face 
too was of such a man a face coloured and toughened by the tannin of wind and blizzard and hot northern sun with eyes cobwebbed about by a myriad of fine lines that spoke of years spent under the strain of those things he was not a large man he was shorter than david rain there was a slight droop to his shoulders yet about him there was a strength a suppressed energy ready to act a zestfulness eager for life and its daily mysteries which the other and younger man did not possess throughout many thousands of square miles of the great northern wilderness this older man was known as father roland the missioner his companion was not more than thirty-eight perhaps he was a year or two younger it may be that the wailing of the wind outside the strange voices that were in it and the chilling gloom of their little compartment made of him a more striking contrast to father roland than he would have been under other conditions his eyes were clear and steady gray as they met father roland's they were eyes that one could not easily forget except for his eyes he was like a man who had been sick and was still sick the missioner had made his own guess and now with his hand on the other's knee he said and you say that you are afraid for this friend of yours david rain nodded his head lines deepened a little about his mouth yes i'm afraid for a moment he turned to the night a fiercer volley of the little snow demons beat against the window as though his pale face just beyond the reach stirred them to greater fury i have a most disturbing inclination to worry about him he added and shrugged his shoulders slightly he faced father roland again did you ever hear of a man losing himself he asked i don't mean in the woods or in a desert or by going mad i mean the other way heart body soul losing one's grip you might call it until there was no earth to stand on did you yes many years ago i knew of a man who lost himself in that way replied the missioner straightening in his seat but he found himself again and this friend of yours i am interested this is the first time in three years that i have been down to the edge of civilization and what you have to tell will be different vastly different from what i know if you are betraying nothing would you mind telling me his story it's not a pleasant story warned the younger man and on such a night as this it may be that one can see more clearly into the depths of misfortune and tragedy interrupted the missioner quietly a faint flush rose into david rain's pale face there was something of nervous eagerness in the clasp of his fingers upon his knees of course there is the woman he said yes of course the woman sometimes i haven't been quite sure whether this man worshipped the woman or the woman's beauty david went on with a strange glow in his eyes he loved beauty and this woman was beautiful almost too beautiful for the good of one's soul i guess and he must have loved her for when she went out of his life it was as if he had sunk into a black pit out of which he could never rise i have asked myself often if he would have loved her if she had been less beautiful even quite plain and i have answered myself as he answered that question in the affirmative it was born in him to worship wherever he loved at all her beauty made a certain sort of completeness for him he treasured that he was proud of it he counted himself the richest man in the world because he possessed it but deep under his worship of her beauty he loved her i am more and more sure of that and i am equally sure that time will prove it that he will never rise again with his old hope and faith out of that black pit into which he sank when he came face to face with the realization that there were forces in life in nature perhaps more potent than his love and his own strong will father roland nodded i understand he said and he sank back farther in his corner by the window so that his face was shrouded in a little shadow 
This other man loved a woman, too. And she was beautiful. He thought she was the most beautiful thing in the world. It is great love that makes beauty. But this woman, my friend's wife, was so beautiful that even the eyes of other women were fascinated by her. I have seen her when it seemed she must come fresh from the hands of angels. And at first, when my friend was the happiest man in the world, he was fond of telling her that it must have been the angels who put the color in her face and the wonderful golden fires in her shining hair. It wasn't his love for her that made her beautiful. She was beautiful. And her soul? softly questioned the shadowed lips of the missioner. The other's hand tightened slowly. In making her, the angels forgot a soul, I guess, he said. Then your friend did not love her. The little missioner's voice was quick and decisive. There can be no love where there is no soul. That is impossible. He did love her. I know it. I still disagree with you. Without knowing your friend, I say that he worshipped her beauty. There were others to worship the same loveliness, others who did not possess her, and who would have betrayed their souls for her. Had they possessed souls to barter, is that not true? Yes, there were others. But to understand, you must have known my friend before he sank down into the pit, when he was still a man. He was a great student. His fortune was sufficient to give him both time and means for the pursuits he loved. He had his great library, and adjoining it a laboratory. He wrote books which few people read because they were filled with facts and odd theories. He believed that the world was very old, and that there was less profit for men in discovering new luxuries for an artificial civilization than in rediscovering a few of the great laws and miracles buried in the dust of the past. He believed that the nearer we got to the beginning of things, and not the farther we drift, the clearer comprehension can we have of the earth and sky and God and the meaning of it all. He did not consider it an argument for progress that Christ and his disciples knew nothing of the telephone, of giant engines run by steam of electricity, or of instruments by which man could send messages for thousands of miles through space. His theory was that the patriarchs of old held a closer touch on the pulse of life than progress in its present forms will ever bring to us. He was not a fanatic. He was not a crank. He was young and filled with enthusiasm. He loved children. He wanted to fill his house with them, but his wife knew that she was too beautiful for that, and they had none. He had leaned a little forward and pulled his hat a trifle over his eyes. There was a moment lull in the storm, and it was so quiet that each could hear the ticking of Father Roland's big silver watch. Then he said, I don't know why I tell you all this, Father, unless it's to relieve my own mind. There can be no hope that it will benefit my friend, and yet it cannot harm him. It seems very near to sacrilege to put it into words what I am going to say about his wife. Perhaps there were extenuating conditions for her. I have tried to convince myself of that, just as he tried to believe it. It may be that a man who was born into his age must consider himself a misfit unless he can tune himself in sympathy with its manner of life. He cannot be too critical." I guess, if he is to exist in a certain social order of our civilization, unburdened by great doubts and deep glooms, he must not shiver when his wife tinkles her champagne glass against another. He must learn to appreciate the sinuous beauties of the cabaret dancer, and must train himself to take no offense when he sees shimmering wines tilted down white throats. He must train himself to many things, just as he trains himself to classical music and grand opera. To do these things he must forget as much as he can, the sweet melodies and the sweeter women who are sinking into oblivion together. He must accept life as a grand piano tuned to a new sort of tuning master, and unless he can dance to its music, he is a misfit. 
That is what my friend said to extenuate her. She fitted into this kind of life splendidly. He was in the other groove. She loved light, laughter, wine, song, and excitement. He, the misfit, loved his books, his work, and his home. His greatest joy would have been to go with her, hand in hand, through some wonderful cathedral, pointing out its ancient glories and mysteries to her. He wanted aloneness, just they two. Such was his idea of love, and she wanted other things. You understand, father? The thing grew, and at last he saw that she was getting away from him. Her passion for admiration and excitement became a madness. I know, because I saw it. My friend said that it was madness, even as he was going mad and yet did not suspect her. If another had told him that she was unclean, I'm sure he would have killed him. Slowly he came to experience the agony of knowing that the woman whom he worshipped did not love him. But this did not lead him to believe that she could love another, or others. Then, one day, he left the city. She went with him to the train, his wife. She saw him go. She waved her handkerchief at him, and as she stood there she was glorious. Through partly closed eyes, the little missioner saw his shoulders tighten. A hardness settled about his mouth. The voice, too, was changed when it went on. It was almost emotionless. It's sometimes curious how the chief arbiter of things plays his tricks on men and women, isn't it, father? There was trouble on the line ahead, and my friend came back. It was unexpected. It was late when he reached home, and with his night key he went in quietly, because he did not want to awaken her. It was very still in the house until he came to the door of her room. There was a light. He heard voices, very low. He listened. He went in. There was a terrible silence. The ticking of Father Roland's big silver watch seemed like the beating of a tiny drum. And what happened then, David? My friend went in, repeated David. His eyes sought Father Roland squarely, and he saw the question there. No, he did not kill them, he said. He doesn't know what kept him from killing the man. He was a coward, that man. He crawled away like a worm. Perhaps it was that was why my friend spared him. The wonderful part of it was that the woman, his wife, was not afraid. She stood up in her ravishing dishevelment, with that mantle of gold he had worshipped streaming about her to her knees. And she laughed? Yes, she laughed. A mad sort of laugh, a laughter of fear, perhaps, but laughter. So he did not kill them. Her laughter, the man's cowardice, saved them. He turned, he closed the door, he left them, and he went out into the night. He paused as though his story was finished. And that is the end? asked Father Roland softly. Of his dreams, his hopes, his joy in life, yes, that was the end. But of your friend's story? What happened after that? A miracle, I think, replied David hesitatingly, as though he could not quite understand what had happened after that. You see, this friend of mine was not of the vacillating and irresolute sort. I had always given him credit for that, credit for being a man who would measure up to a situation. He was quite an athlete and enjoyed boxing and fencing and swimming. If at any time in his life he could have conceived of a situation such as he encountered in his wife's room, he would have lived a, a mortal certainty of killing the man. And when the situation did come, it was not a miracle that he should walk out into the night, leaving them only unharmed. But together. I ask you, Father, was it not a miracle? Father Roland's eyes were gleaming strangely under the shadow of his broad-brimmed black hat. He merely nodded. Of course, resumed David, it may have been that he was too stunned to act. I believe that the laughter, her laughter, acted upon him like a powerful drug, 
instead of plunging him into the passion of a murderous desire for vengeance it curiously enough anesthetized his emotions for hours he heard that laughter i believe he'll never forget it he wandered the streets all that night it was in new york and of course he passed many people but he did not see them when morning came he was on fifth avenue many miles from his home he wandered downtown in constantly growing human stream whose noise and bustle and many-keyed voice acted on him as a tonic for the first time he asked himself what he would do stronger and stronger grew the desire in him to return to face again that situation in his home i believed that he would have done this i believed that the red blood in him would have meted out its own punishment had he not turned just in time and at the right place he found himself in front of the little church around the corner nestling in its hiding place just off the avenue he remembered its restful quiet the coolness of the aisles and alcoves he was exhausted and he went in he sat down facing the chancel as his eyes became accustomed to the gloom he saw that the broad low dais in front of the organ was banked with great masses of hydrangeas there had been a wedding probably the evening before my friend told me of the thickening that came to his throat of the strange terrible throb in his heart as he sat there alone the only soul in the church and stared at those hydrangeas hydrangeas had been their own wedding flower father and then for the first time there was something like a break in the younger man's voice my friend thought he was alone he went on but someone had come out like the shadow beyond the chancel railing and all of a sudden beginning wonderfully low and sweet the great organ began to fill the church with his melody the organist too thought he was alone he was a little old man his shoulders thin and drooped his hair white but in his soul there must have been a great love and a great peace he played something low and sweet when he finished he rose and went away as quietly as he had come and for a long time after that my friend sat there alone something new was born in him something which i hope will grow and comfort him in the years to come when he went out into the city again the sun was shining he did not go home he did not see the woman his wife again he has never seen her since that night when she stood up in her disheveled beauty and laughed at him even the divorce proceedings did not bring them together i believe that he treated her fairly through his attorneys he turned over to her a half of what he possessed and then he went away that was a year ago in that year i know that he has fought desperately to bring himself back to his old health of mind and body and i am quite sure that he has failed he paused his story finished he drew the brim of his hat lower over his eyes and then rose to his feet his build was slim and clean-cut he was perhaps five feet ten inches in height which was four inches taller than the little missioner his shoulders were of good breadth and waist and hips of an athletic slimness but his clothes hung with a certain looseness his hands were unnaturally thin and his face still hovered the shadows of sickness and of mental suffering father roland stood beside him now with eyes that shone with a deep understanding under the sputter of the lamp above their heads the two men clasped hands and the little missioner's grip was like the grip of iron david i've preached a strange code through the wilderness for many a year he said and his voice was vibrant with strong emotion i'm not catholic and i'm not church of england i've got no religion that wears a name i'm simply father roland and all these years i've helped bury the dead in the forest and nurse the sick and marry the living and it may be that i've learned one thing better than most of you who live down in civilization and that's how to find yourself when you're down and out boy will you come with me their eyes met a fiercer gust of storm beat against the windows they could hear the wind wailing in the trees outside 
"'It was your story that you told me,' said Father Roland, his voice barely above a whisper. "'She was your wife, David.' It was very still for a moment. Then came the reply, "'Yes, she was my wife.' Suddenly David freed his hand from the little missioner's clasp. He had stopped something that was almost like a cry on his lips. He pulled his hat still lower over his eyes and went through the door into the main part of the coach. Father Roland did not follow. Some of the ruddiness had gone from his cheeks, and as he stood facing the door through which David had disappeared, a smoldering fire began to burn far back in his eyes. After a few moments his fire died out, and his face was gray and haggard as he sat down again in his corner. His hands unclenched. With a great sigh his head drooped forward on his chest, and for a long time he sat thus, his eyes and face lost in shadow. One would not have known that he was breathing. End of chapter 1